0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled, with fasting and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Benai, and Canaanai, And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Benai, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, and all his servants, and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against their fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths, as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in in steadfast love, and did not forsake them.
1: All right, so in his, the first of his 95 theses, German theologian Martin Luther famously wrote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance. We say this often, but confession and repentance aren't just the way into the Christian life, but they're the way of the Christian life. And it's because we really believe that healing for sin lies on the other side of honesty about sin. And at a certain point in any revival work of God, and that's what we said has been happening over the last couple of chapters here that we're looking at, that God is reviving his people... But what we said is that any revival work of God, at some point, the people are inevitably going to have to face the facts. And that's what commentator Derek Kidner says that we're seeing here in chapter 9 of Nehemiah. And I'm going to be referring to the entirety of the chapter, so keep a thumb in it. We only read the first 17 verses, but I'll be popping around. But Israel is facing the facts of their rebellion through the action of confession. And my main point today, the thing that I want us to understand from this text is this. Revival amongst God people's God's people requires us to face the facts in honest confession and through it receive Christ's strength for hopeful endurance. And I believe that there are three things that any honest confession of sin has to deal with, and I really believe that we see all of them in this prayer. And so let's look at them. First, we see here that God is holy. See, what we say, what, what we mean when we say that God is holy is that we're saying that he's completely other. He exists outside of our categories of description. We don't, we don't really have good enough words to describe, and so we have to rely on how he describes himself. And we'll come back to this in a bit, but but his holiness implies his perfections in all of his ways. But for now, we want to see that he is perfect in his righteousness and his justice. That he has rules and commands for his people that he really expects us to obey. For instance, look at verses 13 and 14. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws Good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. God condescended to his people. He came down to them to make known to them his regulations. And his commandments are meant for the people's good, right? Verse 29 says, if a person does them, they shall live by them. These are good things. And this is a reference back to Leviticus 17, something that the people would have just, or excuse me, Leviticus 18, something that the people would have just been reading, where God tells his people that the way to life is not to live like the Egyptians did, or or even to live like you did while you were in Egypt, right? The self-help gurus are all out there writing best-selling books, trying to get you to maximize your life, get the most out of it. But God is here saying, true life is found when lived in the loving constraints of my rule. That's where we find fullness and trueness of life. And basically, dating back to the last chapter, the Israelites are coming to see that God is holy and he has an actual standard for his people. And if he really is God, they're noticing that we need to actually start staking his standard seriously. And so what we're seeing here in Nehemiah 9 is not just an intellectual understanding of God, but this is an understanding that's leading the people to application. It's actually moving them to do things. It's leading them to make actions regarding what they're learning about God. And ultimately, it's an understanding that's leading them to to see their sin for what it really is. It's sin. It's wickedness. It's rebellion. As they draw closer to the light of God's holiness... They're able to see the blemishes of their faults more clearly. Right? You may may think you look pretty good in a dimly lit room. But when you stand before a hotel mirror, you see yourself for what you really are. And when we stand before the light, the perfect light of God's holy requirements, and you're confronted with your sin, it's either going to lead you to respond in one of two ways. You're either going to shy away from the light and you're going to try to find a way to cover your imperfections in the dark. I'm not going to stand in front of that mirror anymore. Or you'll draw closer to the light of God, the light of His holiness, and you're going to marvel in His goodness and grace and mercy. Which are you? Like, honestly. Think about that for a second. Which are you? When your sin is exposed and you hear God's voice all throughout Scripture saying, You must be holy as I am holy, how do you respond? See, all true confession acknowledges that there really is a standard. And that standard is holiness, it's perfection. And true confession admits that we actually don't get to set the terms of the standard. We don't get to say, I'm going to obey the parts of this that I I like. Maybe I'm inclined to. But these other ones, you know, that's what grace is for. No, and that leads us to the second aspect that all true confession faces. And, And this is both the most obvious and probably the most difficult. And it's this fact that we are rebellious. I'm convinced that three of the hardest words to say in any language are the words, I was wrong. See, true confession, true confession is honest. It doesn't say things like, well, sure, things could have gone better. You know, they weren't as good as they could have been. or may, Yet maybe mistakes were made. I'm not going to say who made them, but mistakes were made. Or maybe, well, I certainly wasn't the only one doing it. No, as as Derek Kidner says, true confession faces the facts. It admits that I was wrong and gives no equivocation. Personally speaking, maybe one of the most difficult ways that I have to do this regularly is when I confess my sin to my children. There's something distinctly humbling about getting on your knees and looking a three-year-old in the eye to let him know, Daddy was wrong. I should not have done that. I wasn't just, and, and children are so great, right? They're so quick to forgive. We, we can learn something from them. He usually forgets the transgression before I even bring it up. But I have to do it. I have to show him that when I'm wrong, I have to let him know. I have to confess before God and before him. But like I said, this is, this is a really difficult phrase for us to utter, And this is a deep, it's an intrinsic problem in us, dating all the way back to Eden, right? Remember in Genesis 3, when when Adam and Eve have fallen and God comes to speak with them, how does Adam respond? What does he say? Well, no, 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 no. It was that woman you gave me. And I just imagine God kind of responding. You mean that that woman literally on the last page that you were just singing a hymn over because she completed you? That's the woman you're complaining about, I see. Um, but it doesn't stop there, right? He goes on to Eve, and she says, Well, it's that snake. He talks. Right? She's, she's moving it all, and she's she's basically saying, Well, if you didn't put that snake in here to begin with, then I would have never fought, I wouldn't have sinned. So if you really think about it, God, this is kind of your fault. Or at least it's shared. Now, and and, and let's just be honest, this feels familiar, right? And it doesn't just feel familiar because you've heard the story before. It feels familiar because you've lived the story before. I mean, let's just be honest. Maybe this last week, maybe on your way to church today. Well, I wouldn't have cussed him out if he didn't cut me off in the rain while I'm trying to get to church and I'm already running late. Blaming him for your sins of anger. Well, no, 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 I, I wouldn't have lusted after her if she didn't just dress so provocatively. She's, she's basically asking for it. This is, if you think about it, this is what she wants me to do. Blaming her for your sins of lust. Generally speaking, we just have a really hard time coming to terms with the fact that the person responsible for my wrongdoing is me. When we confess our sins, there needs to be no caveats, no blame shifting or sharing. We need to have the courage to utter the words, I was wrong. And now you may have noticed, but I'm, I'm making a lot of personal applications from a text that is actually a corporate confession. And I'm doing this on purpose. It's, it's because I believe that we will not confess like this corporately Until we're convinced of this individually. And I don't mean convinced of this in the person that we see down the pew, but the person that we see in the mirror. See, much of what's going on in this prayer is the people are confessing the sins of those that have gone before them. And they're suffering in the misery of judgment which has come upon them from the sins of their fathers. Right, verse 2 records that the, 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 the Israelites are, have separated themselves and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. There's, this, there's systemic layers going on here that are being confess it, confessed. There's, there's a lot being dealt with in this prayer. And in verse 33, the people say, you, speaking of God, have been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. So they're saying, yeah, maybe we weren't set up for success by those that went before us. But we're guilty too. We have acted wickedly. We can't just shift it onto them. But but like I said, they're not just saying mistakes were made. They're going into detail. Right, our, our text today could be described as a concise summary of the entire Old Testament. Th- this is the last history book in the Old Testament, and basically through confession, the Israelites are recapping the ways in which they've caused this thing to just really go off the rails. The actual prayer begins in verse 6, and it runs from, and from verses 6 to 15. You may have noticed, but God is the subject of every sentence. As the confession starts at creation and works its way through Abraham and Egypt and and the Red Sea and the wilderness, God is the one who makes. He's the one who chooses. He's the one who brings out, who gives, who keeps, who sees, who hears, who knows, who speaks, who commands, and who swears. God's people are simply passive recipients of his goodness. And God's goodness continues throughout the prayers. He's described as giving and subduing and multiplying and allotting and bringing good things to His people. And kind of like a high note in verse twenty-five, the text says, "And the people delighted themselves in God's great goodness." But when the people enter the prayer, not as passive, passive recipients of God's goodness, but active agents in history. How do the people describe themselves? In verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt. The people are being honest. They're facing the facts. They're saying, despite God's goodness to us, when we acted, we did so wrongly. And maybe one of the most amazing aspects of this prayer is that despite their acknowledgement of this, in verses 16 and 17, despite their acknowledgement of their own wickedness, God continues to be good to his people. God is so much more patient than we can even imagine him to be. But listen, because I need you to hear this. Do not confuse God's patience with his approval. Paul tells us not to presume on on God's kindness and patience, not knowing that his delay is actually meant to lead us to repentance. His loving kindness to us, his goodness to us, even when we're wicked, is meant to turn us to repentance, not to slap an okay sticker on it. His delay is not an acceptance of our sin, but an allowance of time for us to turn from it. God's patience and goodness are greater than we can comprehend, but it does have an expiration date. To the unrepentant, eventually, judgment comes. And we see that acknowledged in verse 26, which kind of uh, functions as a hinge, a turning point in the text. Despite how good God has been to his people, even though they had strayed, the text gives us one of the most heartbreaking words. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. And cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them to suffer. Despite their wickedness, God gave them nothing but goodness and kindness. But from here on out, God's actions of goodness are mingled with his actions of judgment. Sin has consequences. And while the first, nevertheless, in the text is heartbreaking, there's another one. And this one is heart-melting. Despite their wickedness, the people recall in verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Even in God's judgment, he is abundantly merciful to his people. Did you know that three times in the text, in the whole chapter, the people recall that they cried out to God? And did you know that three times in the text, throughout the chapter, whenever the people cried out to God, the text says that he heard their cry and he delivered them. It didn't matter what they had done. It didn't matter how far they had strayed. It didn't matter that they had rebelled, blasphemed, killed, did evil, or stiffened their necks. Verse 28 says, Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. God is more merciful than we can even imagine, so much so that anyone who cries out to God in faith will be heard. Now the third and most fundamental thing that all true confession accounts for is that God is merciful and gracious. Whenever we confess our sin, we need to confidently lay hold of God's character. As I studied this text last week, the fact of God's character jumped off the pages. What we see here is that God is persistently good to a persistently disobedient people. If you read through the whole chapter, what you'll see is not only that God does good to his people, even though we don't deserve it, but that he is good to his people. The backbone of this prayer is God's character. In verses 6 and 7, it says, you are the Lord. Well, what does that entail? Verse 8, you are righteous. Verse 17, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 31, you are a gracious and merciful God. Verse 32, he is our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. This is who God is. And the Israelites weren't guessing at this, they've been spending their time marinating in the scripture. They've been recalling all the stories of God's faithfulness to Abraham. They've seen him in his deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, his kindness to warn his people through the prophets. The descriptions are on every page. But ultimately, they don't have to guess at God's character because their God, our God, the God of the Bible, is a speaking God. The psalmists say that it's the false gods that have mouths but don't speak, ears but don't hear, noses but don't smell. But our God is a speaking God, and when he spoke to Moses and described himself, what did he say? The Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is who he is. It's his character. And friends, while, while Israel had a vivid and articulate understanding of God's character through his actions and his words, the author of Hebrews says that we have something better. He opens his letter long ago, After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is hinted at in Israel's references to the promises made to Abraham and the covenant-keeping steadfast love of God, we see it embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is available to those who cry out to mercy to God because his grace and mercy is just part of his character. See, like the Israelites, the backbone of our prayers of confession is God's character. But unlike the Israelites, we can see God's character on display through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that means that we have even more confidence to pray our prayers of confession. God was not only unwilling to break covenant with his people, but he was also willing to take the full judgment for our covenant breaking in Christ. Why can we cry out to God as his true children, knowing that we're going to be heard? Well, it's because when Jesus, the true son of God, cried out to his father in agony on the cross, the heavens rang in silence. How can we know that our disobedience won't dissuade God from being faithful to us, even when we've fallen again, when we we promised we wouldn't do it again, but we did it. Because if Christ, the God-man, was faithful to us even unto death, how much more will he now be faithful to us in newness of life? Because of Jesus, because God is who he says he is, in our confession, when we face the fact of our sin, we must do it in light of God's character on full display to us in Christ. We have to. And this gives us endurance for the road ahead. We're drawn closer to the light of God's holiness, not pushed further away into the dark, because we see how marvelously good and gracious and merciful God is, has been, and will continue to be to us. And because of this, because of Jesus, the Apostle John says, when we confess our sins, we can do it with the hope, knowing that if we confess our sins, he will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beloved, if if you've repented of your sin, if you've faced the facts and you've cried out to your merciful Father in heaven, then I want you to hear, I want you to believe, and I want you to receive these words. Your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Our Father, we pray.